Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting from high above the Dongcheng district of Beijing. With me remotely this time is my co-host David Moser calling in from across town. David, how you doing? Good, good. Everything going pretty smoothly this semester. Hope yours is as well. I'm looking forward to having a semester, David. That's the big part. <laughs> right. To do that, apparently you need students. And since you have students and I do not, you have more of a semester than I do. But I'm looking, hey, hope like mildew springs eternal. And so we're thinking that maybe yeah, in the I'm, fall. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, as, a, as an academic, I always talk about semesters and people who are in business or something else don't know what I'm talking about. And also <laughs> joining us from across <laughs> China, it, from all the way from Xining in Qinghai province is our guest today, Ben Kubich. Ben, how are you doing? Hey, good morning, guys. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So Ben is an outdoor education and experience specialist. He runs a company in Xining that leads trips and workshops all over Western China. In fact, all over China. We're really pleased that Ben's going to be joining us today. Ben, maybe give us a bit of background. You know, how did you come to China? What's your background with outdoors and outdoor experiences? And tell us a little bit more about your company. Thanks, Jeremiah. So for that first question, how did I come to China? The answer was pretty simple, on an airplane, like most of us actually. So, but the, the more detailed answer actually is, uh, so I've, I've lived 13 years in Western China on the Tibetan Plateau, had an adventure travel business called Elevated Trips, where I take people onto the plateau. And uh, the way I got into the outdoors is I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a member of the Explorers Club. I studied environmental science when I was in university. And uh, I basically just wanted to take that environmental science degree and uh, yeah, use it and community development. And so that's what I ended up doing in China. My wife and I, for our honeymoon, hiked what's called the Pacific Crest Trail, about 2,650 miles from Mexico to Canada, over 4,000 kilometers, hiking about 30 kilometers every day for six months. That's what we did in 2008 when we got married. And since then, we've taken our love for backpacking and the outdoors and the mountains, environmental edu education, and we brought it here to China and use that in our travel business called Elevated Trips. So that's a little bit of our, our story here. One of you know, when you think about starting a business in China, a lot of people come to China, they start businesses in places like Beijing, Shanghai, but starting a business out in Xining, could you tell us a little bit about some of those early years, you know, from, from the con concept to the first implementation? What were some of the challenges and how did you kind of perceive the opportunities? So, like I said, we lived here 13 years. We spent our first three or four years here at Qinghai Minzu Dashui, which is this very small little university that no one's ever heard of, mostly for uh, minority students here in China. And we studied Chinese and we, we kind of got Chinese under our belt as a bit of a language and then uh, got acclimated into China. And from there, we, uh, we basically used that as a platform to start, start our own business. Starting a business in Western China is definitely hard. There's only about 200 foreigners that live in our whole province. Uh, so it's not like Shanghai and Beijing where you have all these resources. So it's a lot of uh, guesswork. Fortunately, we did have a company that helped us do that called Qinghai Business Services, and they helped us register a business. But it took probably two or three years to kind of move, segue from that uh, um, student visa into our, our own business. And it probably took about six months total and about 30,000 US dollars to register our business here. But we registered it. And of course, Qinghai has a little bit more challenges just as far as not being as developed as much, being re remote, not having as many resources. So yeah, we did that in uh, probably about seven years ago and have been running a business, business since. There is something called the CTS, the China Travel Service, I think, you know, 
And do do it in what sense? In what ways do you maybe in, intersect with those services, or are they lacking services out there, or were you there? Uh, sort of in a competitor basis for them? Do they know about you? How, what's your relationship to the official travel agencies that China runs? So we work under an official travel agency that helps us do all of our bookings and just keeps everything legal as far as here because you know, all of our, our car bookings and hotel bookings have to run under a travel agency. And they're probably affiliated with the, uh, the China travel, travel Service themselves. I myself am kind of just a consultant that works under the travel agency, so I don't touch the CTS too too much as far as that, that big you know government stuff, but probably most of our trips in a very legal sense come come under that. But I would as, I would assume yours are much more I would say boutique or or more I, I don't know I've never done a CTS tour or anything, so I imagine they're very uh, standardized uh, kind of antiseptic. Yeah, Ben, maybe maybe talk a little bit about how what you do differs from what say if I wanted to simply book like a. A China yeah. travel service trip to Qinghai. How does that differ from what yeah. you provide? Okay, so yeah, as you probably know, as, as foreigners living in China, you know, most China uh, tours tend to be these big bus tours. They pack people on a bus. They drive 500, 600 kilometers a day. Uh, in particular, in Qinghai province where I live, they go to Qinghai Lake. That's the number one destination in Qinghai. Uh, they take a selfie at Qinghai Lake. They do the big bus tourism thing. They go to a Sichuan restaurant and they come back. There's really no experience, no memory, no life change. It's just uh, just mass tourism, right? And that's that's how Chinese like to do tourism. It's usually cheap. Um, I, I don't think it really impacts people's lives or changes people's lives. We are on the total opposite end of that spectrum where we do really small groups, maybe six people, eight people. We're out to give people life change. We're out to teach people about worldview. We want to help people learn about Buddhism and history and yeah, we just want we just want to open it and expand expand people's mind. And so we, you know, for us, it's all about engaging the local culture. What are the local people doing? And spending time with local people. So we're not just there taking a selfie and just moving through really quickly. We're actually there to you know help people understand who they are and what the world is around them. So our tours are very very different, very authentic, very um, you know get get your hands dirty. You know, learn about the nomads. Actually, use the yak poop to start a yak poop fire. Make make yogurt hands-on experiences, hands-on workshops, so, uh, which a lot of Chinese tours are not doing. So I think we're a lot more authentic and hopefully a lot more engaging than most of Chinese t- what Chinese tours are doing. Ben, since, you, since you're often taking people out into areas that are a little bit off the usual tourist trail, and many of your clients, not all, but many of your clients are international, either visitors or people or foreigners living in China. What are some of the special challenges for working with groups of foreigners in some of these areas on the Tibetan Plateau, or for that matter, in the actual TAR, the, the, the so-called Tibetan Autonomous Region? Uh, do, you find, do you find it sometimes tricky to navigate um, some of the possible, uh, well, let's just say issues that could come up depending upon who's on a trip? We've hosted in the past journalists and diplomats, and uh, traditionally, if you live in China, you know those are both uh, very sensitive passport types. Yeah, we've had we have been followed by the police in some cases. A lot of our tours just go you know very straightforward, and it's okay. But you never know. At some point, you check into a hotel, and then suddenly you have a guy following you around the rest the rest of the trip, and um, they just want to check on your documents. So we never know where the people are coming from that we're hosting. We, we try to do a little background research, but once in a while it does get a little bit sensitive, but we, we've managed that. Also, we also have to be very aware in Qinghai, there's a lot of places we can't visit. You know, there's there's places foreigners cannot visit technically. So we have to be aware of where those are and where those aren't. And we obviously, we, 
we go to the places that are still beautiful and still open, big mountain areas, but that are allowed to, legally allowed to host parties. So we do have to do quite a lot of dancing around as far as figuring out where we go and just making sure we have the permissions and calling a lot, especially during COVID. That was crazy. We spent, you know, probably 20 hours a week during COVID just figuring out are hotels accepting foreigners? Do they have to have a COVID test? I mean, there were so many regulations, but uh, fortunately, all those are, are, are all gone now. But foreigners are still a little bit sensitive about Western China, so there's a little bit of extra work that we do. And I, I like to think that's part of our job. You know, it's it's hard for just backpackers to show up and arrive and travel by themselves here these days because it, it is such a, a regulated environment. So that's kind of what a lot of our, our business does is kind of pave those roads for those foreigners to be able to travel those places. So I, I assume you know you're giving a tourist this experience kind of educating them about local culture. Mm -hmm. So do you have, do you have local, uh, you know, Tibetans there that you, you routinely kind of visit their living, you know, space and, uh, and how does that negotiate it? Are they, are they happy to do that? Do they become sort of uh, savvy <laughs> about, you know, what tourists uh, want to see and what the problems are, or do you have to manage them and, what are the cultural kind of differences? Do they? I assume they speak they speak Putonghua or Mandarin or enough that you can communicate with them. What? How does it? You work with the local people that you send uh, that you give the uh, tourists the chance to interact with. How do you manage that situation? Good question, David. So we describe ourselves as a eco tourism business, which is a a word that's thrown around a lot in the business, probably um, sometimes falsely. Uh, but basically the heart of ecotourism is that we're helping local communities, right? Uh, we're, we're not employing people that are YD-ran or from outside a province or outside an area, but we're employing all local Tibetans, our drivers, our guides, our own local Tibetans. So they're all, our guides are all guides that have learned English and now speak English and have a tour guide license. And, you know, they all come from these, you know, little Tibetan villages. And basically we visit those guides homes, we visit those guides, ah. cousins and mothers and uh, relationships. Mm. And then, you know, we use the, those guides relationships to then uh, sleep in a, a nomadic tent or learn about Tibetan culture or have a, a nomadic experience, which is something that sets us apart from other other companies. And uh, so hopefully what we're doing is we're training these local communities. We're visiting a homestay. And of course, we show up and they, you know, they have no idea what, who, who these partners are, you know, why we're there. Or what. But you know, <laughs> of course, they're very hospitable. They're serving us. They're making us yak meat. They're cooking for us. They're teaching us how to, how to use a slingshot or ride a horse or things like that. But over time, we, we build these relationships where we're going back to the same homestay and same community over and over and over. So the, the business is not just about me or or feeding my family, or even just employing three or four guides. It's really about reaching a whole bunch of communities and continually engaging those communities so that we're putting money, not just money back in their pockets, but training. A lot of these people you know, have never been past high school in their training. They grew up in mountains at 4,000 meters. They're pretty limited in their experiences. All they've ever known is, is yaks and herding sheep and things. And so our tourism is basically giving them opportunities to develop themselves, to learn some new skills, and then to also understand about the outside world. In turn, we're then understanding a little bit more about their sustainable life with, you know, living in culture or how they live as nomads or things that we've kind of become detached from as, you know, urban city dwellers, how, how to live, you know, in the mountains and things like that. So we, we kind of have this cultural exchange going on, which I think is really helpful. And in general, I think the nomads really enjoy meeting us, enjoy learning about the, the outside influence and things like that. You mentioned, you mentioned, of course, the end of the zero COVID policies. And that's something that David and I have talked about on this podcast before. You know, the kind of the sudden switch from, you know, it's COVID, we must control COVID to, you know what, let's just, you know, let's just let every, the fates decide this matter. And it was kind of a very quick turnaround. You know, in the travel business, of mm -hmm. course, this in some ways almost within a few weeks changed the landscape 
for travel inside China. And now with the announcement that their tourist visas will be either valid from tourist visas before, or they'll be accepting applications for new tourist visas, we're anticipating that at least some people are going to be coming back to China for travel. For, for your company in particular, how have you, again, navigated these particular waters from you know, a very strict kind of situation, you know, it was easier to travel in 2020 and 2021 than it was in 2022. And then going from that to now 2023, where things are opening up at, at a, a really fast rate. I'm, I'm very hopeful for 2023. As you pointed out, 2022 was a, a really difficult year. I mean, just a bear of a year. Uh, I, I probably only did one actual trip in my whole business, all, all of 2022. And everything else, either Shanghai was locked down, where our customers will be coming from, or Western China, I was literally locked in my house for about four months of 2022 for just a few hundred COVID cases. So it was a very extreme lockdown situation. And obviously, that's not a very good climate for any business, let alone the travel business. So uh, 2022, we were barely scraping by. I think most companies you know, were barely scraping by. I did a few trips in uh, Eastern China and Guangzhou and Shenzhen, leading international schools, just to kind of survive and make some money. This year, as of December 7th, 2022, China just took out all the QR codes, all the quarantines, all the tests, all, everything. <clears throat> After two and a half years of really extreme management and regulation, it just ended overnight. And all those apps just went away and suddenly China was free. And then a billion people got COVID over Christmas 2022. And, uh, <laughs> right. and here we are. Now China is technically open for d- domestic travel. So it's really crazy that two and a half years later, uh, we're kind of at the place where America was in, in 2020 as far as opening up. Am I excited? Yes, I'm excited. Finally, domestic travel is open. People don't need a quarantine. They don't need a COVID test. You know, there's no no health code to enter a mall or anything. So um, we're very thankful for that. And and in light of that, also, tour, as you mentioned, tourist visas have opened into China which is huge. As of March 15th, 2023, people can now get a tourist visa into China and China is recognizing people's visas into China. So that's great news for us because largely we were hosting a lot of trips from from abroad, actually, before COVID. That was most of our business. A lot of our businesses taking people into snow leopard trips, which is a really long 14, 15 day trip to take uh, photos of snow leopards. We're taking people to headwaters of the Yellow River, the Mekong River, the Yangtze River. All those rivers have their source in Qinghai province. So we're taking people on these really long expeditions. Those trips tend to be really long, pretty involved trips that are you know, maybe 14 days, which a lot of expats in China just don't have time for. Most expats maybe have three or five or seven days of vacation, but those international trips really are bread and butter. And so I'm really excited for those trips to come back and to be doing more engaging, more expedition style trips that are longer and more thorough and have clients coming from Australia or Europe or, or America. So I'm glad China's opening up. I, I anticipate uh, more tourists coming in and I'm excited. And I actually already have one European friend who already has a tourist visa and is planning to come in in spring 2023 into China. Uh, could I ask a sort of perhaps a slightly sensitive question, but I'm sure a lot of tour- tourism yeah. is interested in t- Tibet for reasons other than just natural scenery and everything, they're also interested in, in the, the religious a- aspect. Uh, how, how do you have to deal with that? Uh, is that something that, that the, 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 the locals that you interact with and the tour guides are, are feel free to talk about? Or is this something that you have to brief the, the foreign travelers on before they come or after, or after they get to, to, uh, to Xining or wherever? I mean, how do you handle that? Yeah, that's a good question, David. Yeah, so in general, <laughs> of course, you know, a lot of our trips tend to be natural scenery. 
And so that's pretty straightforward. And that's fine for us to talk about the geography and things. And then culture is fine. You know, we, we talk about a lot of things about how Tibetans live with, with animals and herding livestock and things like that. And then we come into the religion part uh, where usually I, I give a little bit of history of Tibetan Buddhism. You know, I talk about what it means for this particular monastery, what it means for the, you know, the monks that we're looking at. But as far as politics, we don't really get into that stuff. I just kind of stay away from that stuff and I just kind of keep try to keep it really clean as far as you know what we're talking about nothing's really sensitive not only for me and not only for the travelers we're traveling with but ultimately it could come back to the local communities right those people are hosting us in their homes you know they're, they're ultimately giving in a sense their, their lives to us you know for us to to be able to eat with them and enjoy enjoy their community with them and I wouldn't ever want to bring any negative attention to them so we try to stay right uh, we, we, you know, we just don't talk about any political stuff we keep it really clean anything that's you know that you would be willing or be fine just to see on Douyin or WeChat or things like that those are all topics that we can talk about but things that would be regulated by those places we kind of just stay away from from those topics just to make sure we're, we're being sensitive to those local communities uh, I've lived in China a long time but I've never actually been to Tibet and one of the reasons is not just work but also that I hear different stories about the elevation problem. I'm in my 60s. Uh, you know, I'd love to go to Tibet, but I'm a little bit afraid. I hear some horror stories, and I hear people say it's not such a bad thing. Can you give me what would, if I'm thinking of make, doing a five-day, two-week or something tour of Tibet, how should I be thinking of this at my age and at my, you know, my experience? Great question, David. And we do live at a high altitude, and a lot of the trips I lead are high altitude. And you're actually like the prime demographic of the most most of the people I lead on the the Lhasa to Everest base trip that, that I lead. So most hmm. are 60, 65, kind of in that you know upper bracket where they've saved some money, they have some money to travel, and uh, that's actually most of the people that do the Lhasa Everest base camp trip um, because you know they just have the finances to be able to do it. So um, yes, it is high altitude. Lhasa is three thousand six hundred fifty meters. That's about twelve thousand feet for us Americans listening to the podcast. And, uh, and then you're getting up to Everest Base Camp at 5,200 meters. That's you know, over 17,000 feet. So even for me, I live at high altitude. I've lived here 13 years. I can get a headache. I, I don't sleep very good at 5,200 meters. It's, <laughs> it's kind of the worst night of sleep you'll ever have. But you get up in the morning, and you literally are looking at a sunrise over Mount Everest, over the highest mountain in the world. And, you know, so is it yeah. uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it cold? Yeah. Are you not breathing great? All, yes, all those things are true. But it's, you know. It's your, your one chance in your life to see Mount Everest uh, from the highest monastery in the world. So it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. So I will say the Everest trip is pretty high. I lead it a couple times a year. Um, the altitude thing, we usually acclimatize for three or four days at 3,600 meters in Lhasa. So the first day you feel pretty crappy. You know, you're, it's a little bit hard to breathe. You have a headache. Usually by day four, day five, you're pretty well acclimatized. And, um, and we're moving up to 5,200 meters gradually. So... That's a loss of the Everest trip. Most people do that in like eight to ten days. It's very doable. I think mm -hmm. for someone like yourself, you look like you're, you know, very capable. You look like, you know, many of the, the hosts I've hosted probably hundreds of people like yourself um, on that particular trip. So um, yeah, it, is it high? Is it uncomfortable? Yes, I don't think it's unmanageable. Also, some people do yeah. do take some high altitude medicines as well. Um, like Diamox and things like that. I, I personally don't take Diamox, but I think probably about 50% of our, our guests do take it. And it does help their oxygen uptake and their acclimatization. The negative effect is you have to pee a lot and you have a really, really tingly, <laughs> <laughs> which, which doesn't help the sleeping situation. But uh, the, neg the right. negative effect is you have really tingly fingers in there. So it's a little bit of a weird medicine, but it does help with acclimatization. Some people do that as well. So can, is it possible? Okay. Yes. Is it comfortable all the time? No. 
Okay, great. No, that's reassuring. No, that's good. That's something that's uh, very, very doable. It sounds like it's very doable. I'd like to talk a little bit more about Shanghai because, you know, I think outside of China, people hear about, for, for various reasons, including culture, including scenery, including for other reasons, you know, Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, these are words that people know, many people know about. They're places for destinations that many travelers have an idea. They want to go there. Like, again, checking off that bucket list. I want to go to Tibet. I want to go the Silk Road. But Qinghai, which is, you know, right in the middle of all of these places and in, corp and in some ways is a crossroads of all these different cultures, isn't always as well known outside of China. But you just mentioned, you know, how important it was ecologically and culturally. And I, was, I thought maybe you could introduce a little bit about what makes Qinghai itself so special. Um, why is this such a great place to travel as opposed to maybe even some of the more famous names in the places around it? Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Jeremiah. Uh, thanks for the shout out for the remote location that no one has ever heard of. <laughs> uh, so I live in uh, Qinghai province, Q-I-N-G-H-A-I. Qinghai just means, it refers to the lake or Qinghai Hu or Qinghai Lake, which is the, actually the largest lake in China that you can see from space. Um, the lake is over 120 mm. kilometers long and 100, 100 kilometers wide. So it's a huge, huge lake. So if you're trying to find out where Qinghai province is, just look at the map of China, right dead smack in the middle of the chicken of China. You know, China looks a little bit like a chicken geographically. Uh, it's this huge lake, and that's Qinghai Lake, and that is Qinghai province. So um, most most Chinese don't even know where I live. You know, I tell them where I live, and they're like, oh, where is that? <laughs> like, uh, it's kind of the, the, the wild Montana of, of China. Uh, Qinghai province has about 5 million people. So, you know, there's there's sections of Beijing, probably districts, Chaoyang district in particular, Beijing, probably has more people in that one district than our whole province has. And yet the province itself is bigger than the nation of France. So it's a huge province, lots of wild open areas, you know, with an average altitude of 3,500 to 4,000 meters average altitude. And then, you know, the mountains go up higher than that. So it's a big, wild, open province, a lot of nomadic yak herders, a lot of open spaces. Xining, the capital, has 2 million people, and then the rest of the province has 3 million, which are spread across this huge, vast area of mountains and plateau and grasslands. So it's wild, it's open. It's one of the kind of the last undiscovered places in the world, which is why I live here. Uh, a little bit like uh, going to you know, the, the wilderness of Finland or something like that, uh, where you know it's just it's unpopulated. It's uh, still wild. It hasn't been tamed by tourism and, and big buildings and mass tourism, which I like, which is why I like to live here, because it feels really authentic for me. Qinghai is actually part of the Tibetan Plateau. It's about 25% of the land mass of the entire plateau. And the plateau itself is about 25% of the larger land mass of China. So it's, it's a really big area of land. Uh, when we think of Tibet, people Google Tibet, you know, you see the Patala Palace, Mount Everest. Those are like, the big names that come up in 95% of um, Google searches. And those are all awesome areas to visit, as you know, David was inquiring earlier. But actually, if you want to see super, super authentic Tibetan culture that's untouched, that hasn't been changed by, by mass tourism, Qinghai is probably the best place to come because it's just, yeah, it's just off the beaten track. And so for that's kind of why I live out here is because that's the people that we attract. They want to see something authentic. They want to see something real. They want to see something that you know hasn't been you know moved or changed by by hundreds of people and thousands of people in Beijing. So anyway, that's kind of what Qinghai is, and uh, we'd love to host you guys out here if you know, people want to come out and visit the undiscovered territory. One one trip I've always been fascinated about that you run and and uh, is the snow leopard trip. Yeah, you know, this is something that's very special. I mean, obviously, yeah. snow leopards are an endangered species and and are notoriously 
notoriously hard to find, as a famous book one time pointed out. I was wondering, maybe just as an example of the kind of things that you do, walk us through, maybe not literally, but just, you know, an overview of, of what, like a, what, what it is like to go with you to try to find a snow leopard in the, on the plateau. The first word that comes to mind is difficult <laughs> because, uh, it's, like I said, it's an expedition. Uh, so it's not for the faint of heart. You're flying into Yushu, 3,600 meters same elevation as Lhasa and Ladakh, India. Uh, so you're flying into high altitude area, and then you're driving a few days uh, to another high altitude area at 4,500 meters. That's over 14,000 feet in elevation, which is higher than the highest point in all 48 United States. So you know, if you've ever climbed a 14er in Colorado or California, you know that that's a really high elevation. And you're basically living at that elevation for the next five or six days. You're living in a little tent hotel. There's, there is a bed. There is a like a, a little furnace you know where we're burning some yak poop but other than that you know there's not a 7-eleven out there there's there's, def there's definitely no amenities uh you're just out in the middle of the mountains and you're literally living out there you know, we, we, we cook for you we, we cook all the meals and stuff so all, all that stuff is provided but then basically your job is you get up at the tent in the freezing cold in the morning it's probably negative 10 negative 15 degrees celsius in the morning and you're spending all day just looking through a scope uh and on our <laughs> so I'm probably not doing a really good job selling this trip, but <laughs> this is this is the reality. Everyone thinks it's like magical snow, snow leopards. You're dancing with snow leopards in the snow, but honestly, it's a little bit like being a wildlife photographer on a National Geographic expedition, where 96% of your time is just spent looking through a scope into meaningless mountains where nothing is going on, and then there's kind of this like. 10 to 15 minute magical window that happens sometime in those five days where you see a snow leopard pop its head up and you see it move and it you know wags its tail and suddenly like that's what the whole trip is about is you see these animals who are, who are called the ghosts of the mountains you know they're, they're very very difficult to spot they're very hard to see and the only reason that we have a hundred percent success rate so far of spotting these snow leopards is because our local guide I would have no idea, <laughs> you know, what to look for as far as a snow leopard. But the guys, they live there. They grew up in these mountains. So that, you know, they grew up as nomads, basically herding yaks. In these communities, they grew up with the snow leopards attacking their yaks. And so they're very, very familiar with how, where these snow leopards are and their, their yearly migration patterns. And so because of those guys, we're getting to learn a little bit about their culture. And then because of their knowledge, they're taking us to the best secret spots to see these snow leopards. Qinghai, actually, talking about Qinghai, is, has over 5,000 snow leopards. That's a huge amount of snow leopards considering they have a, a really high area that, 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 that they travel. Most people tend to go to uh, Ladakh, India to, to do a snow leopard trip. Ladakh, India, I think, only has a total of about 500 snow leopards. So Qinghai actually has the largest population of snow leopards anywhere in the world. And most people have never even heard of this province, So, uh, which is probably why they haven't heard of it because it's so remote. So we're going out to the middle of the mountains. We're spending a couple of days in a tent. We're looking through a spotting scope and eventually, you know, we spend a, a few minutes to actually see the snow leopard, which is kind of a magical moment that the whole tour is about. Probably a good thing that uh, the threshold is so high because if there was a, you know, a glut of tourists, it might uh, disrupt uh, that, you know, the, the echo, uh, the ecological, you know, environment, and you might not see them anymore. They may they may gravitate away from that area. Is that possible? Sure. Yeah, no, I, even though it's hard for people to, to know uh, marketing-wise about where Qinghai is and what we do and all that stuff, it's actually an advantage to, to the wildlife. And uh, it, it keeps more attention away from the wildlife so that, you know, you just don't have big buses flooding and ruining the habitat of these animals. 
uh, ultimately, Qinghai, a lot of Qinghai province has become what's called Sanjiang Yuan, or the, the, three, the source of the Three Rivers National Park. And basically, China has created its first official national park and the world's largest national park in the source of these three rivers, the source of the Mekong, the Yangtze, and the Yellow River. And it basically created mm -hmm. a huge area that's a reserve for these uh, animals, not just snow leopards, but Tibetan antelope, wild ass, things like that, wild yaks, thing. animals that you can't see anywhere else in the world. They, they now have a, created a protection zone for these animals, which is really good. It makes it difficult for us to get the permits to see, see them, but uh, it, it ultimately protects the animals, which is probably better in, in the long, long run. We've, we've all, all three of us have at some point led travel programs of various kinds, whether it's educational travel or professional travel. Mm -hmm. And we all have in our memory banks, those stories of that moment when things probably didn't go well or a particular person on our trip <laughs> reacted to the environment around them in ways that have caused them to stick in our memory banks. And I was wondering, <laughs> since, you, since you have hosted so many people from around the world, taking them to places that a lot of people may find challenging, and that's the good thing, right? You want to take people a little bit out of their comfort zone, but are there any stories from the past that you, when you're sitting around the campfire and with uh, with some of the gods, you're like, do you remember that one? I won't share their name. But, uh... No, that, that that's okay. That's okay. I, I, all all identities should be protected. It, it wasn't Jeremiah. I'll say that. <laughs> um, so uh, the one that really stands out to me is I'm leading this trip from Las to Everest, which, which David already pointed out is high altitude. It, it, it is a difficult trip. It's, I'll, I'll give people that it's not comfortable. We had this kind of millionaire guy who, who owned this chain of hotels. So, you know, he, he's quite used to being pampered and waited on. I, I think he had, you know, servants and accountants that, that did everything for him all the time, um, which, which is fine. You know, a lot of the, the people that we see are, are, have a, a good deal of money as they travel. But this guy was just on a, like a totally different level. He wanted just us to do every single thing for him. He, he literally showed up with uh, camera equipment. He, he never had never used it. He never had taken it out of the box. It was still in the plastic wrapping. I think he had about 25,000 US dollars of camera equipment and it was still in the plastic wrap. <laughs> he, he pulls it out of the box and he's fiddling with it and he's trying to get us to explain it, like to him how to use the equipment and he doesn't know how to do it. And so he just wanted us to do every single thing for him on the trip. You know, he was just, just, just wanted to, to wait on him and his way. Honestly, as, as a tour guide, that's that's my job. I'm there to you know increase guest service, make them feel comfortable, and you know help them help them through a, high, a difficult high altitude situation. So I'm okay with that. But he just needed hand holding every single way of you know every single place we we went. He wanted me to personally guide him and do everything for him. So that was a little bit hard. I'd say he was a little bit high maintenance. Um, but on the whole, I'd say 95% of our guests are, are really, really amazing. You know, our trips are kind of self-selecting for people that are adventurous, that, you know, that do want to go out to the mountains and see some really unique, interesting uh, things that you can't see in other places of the world. And so most of our guests have really amazing stories. They come from really cool backgrounds. They have, you know, they're, you know, sometimes they're academic, sometimes they're, uh, sometimes they're business people. So I get to meet a lot of different people from a lot of different places, and I'm thankful for that. Every once in a while, we, we get a little kind of Princess Diva person that's a little high maintenance like that guy. And uh, <laughs> but overall, overall, our trips are pretty good as, as far as guest quality. We I remember taking a, a student group out to the Tibetan Plateau in the uh, Tibetan Autonomous Region and with another faculty member. And we were doing the camping on the plateau thing. And one of the young women who comes from a, a let's just say, a, a liberal arts college where the annual tuition is the equivalent to the gross domestic product of some small island nations. You know, she's a great student, but had not done a lot of camping before. 
And so we're setting up the tents and she looks at the fa- uh, us and goes, okay, so where's the, where's the bathroom? And my fellow faculty member who'd lived in, the, in Tibet for about a decade just starts moving his hands wider and wider to indicate the great open spaces all <laughs> around us. And as his hands are moving wider to indicate the wide open spaces, her eyes are getting as wide as those spaces because she realizes that for the first time in her life, it's going to be her and the great outdoors. And I just, just the sheer look of panic. And I remember the student particularly because their tent was not far away from mine. And about two o'clock in the morning, I hear rustling outside my tent and unzipping and things like that. And I, I gave her a quick lesson in the other rule of hiking, which is if I can hear you do it, you're too close to the tent. Keep walking. So, so Ben, maybe tell us a little bit, now that things have opened up, now that we're past that kind of 2022, what do you have going on in the future? I know you've got some trips coming out. Full disclosure, Ben and I actually have a trip coming up at the end of April, but I know you have a lot of different things coming. Tell us a little bit about what's happening this spring and summer for you. Jeremiah and I are leading a trip from April 29th to May 3rd over May holiday. Uh, we've entitled that trip Red Rocks and Monasteries because we're visiting the Grand Canyon of Western China in Qinghai Province, an area called Kambala National Park, as well as a, a monastery full of 800 monks called Rebkong Longwu Monastery. And uh, I'll be kind of giving a lot of the, the Tibetan cultural inputs, and Jeremiah will be our special guest talking about history. So please don't miss that trip. We have eight people signed up right now. We still have a few more spots for that trip. If you're interested, contact me or, or DMI about that. Also, in April, I'm leading a trip to Lhasa and Mount Everest, as, as we talked about a few times. Um, Lhasa is open, opening for the first time in about three years. It's been closed for Tibet travel permits for foreigners. There's a, a short period in 2021 and 22 where they did open for foreigners and then it closed again. And for the first time in three years, it's going to be continually open. So we're really, very excited that Lhasa is open again for foreigners after all these COVID clo- closures. So I'm excited for that. And probably... April, May, June time, I'll be doing a couple international school trips, both out in the Tibetan Plateau and also in Eastern China. And then that's a lot of what we do, about 50% of what we do is for international schools, and then 50% of what we do is for just a smaller group of adults. So this summer, we hope to be doing a couple of expeditions as well, maybe around Yushu. Um, if people are interested, happy to, our calendar is still a bit open. If people are interested in the Snow Leopard trip, we're happy to run that for people. Usually it's a very small group, you know, four to six people. Obviously, you don't want a lot of people out tramping the plateau, scaring the snow leopards out of their, their caves. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of things we have going on in the fall, just keep continuing to do some more trips. So, I'm, a, I'm excited for the opening of China, both domestically and internationally, and I think that's really going to help a lot. Not just my business, but a lot of people's business. A lot of my personal Tibetan friends who have these, you know, really big travel agencies, they, uh, they've just started driving Didi or, or selling candles on the side of the street. You know, they've, they've barely had to, you know, they haven't had any means to feed their families because there's been no tourism into China over the last three years. So it's really, really good. And people really, really need it as far as economy to uh, support their families. So I'm, I'm excited for the opening of China. Eastern China and the cities is any indication there's a boom coming because almost every place that I've been to, Forbidden City, Temple of Heaven, anywhere in Beijing has just been heaving with people many of them from other parts of China finally taking advantage of the ease of coming through. And, uh, you know, the idea, of course, is hopefully they'll be joined by a growing number of foreign tourists towards the later of this year. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. We really appreciate it. And uh, good luck this year. 
Awesome. Thanks, guys. And if anyone's interested in traveling with our business, you can check us out at www.elevatedtrips.com. Love to host you guys, and we'd love to talk to you more about travel in Western China. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you, David. It's been fun. Great. Nice to meet you. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of Barbarians to the Gate. You can find us wherever your finest podcasts are issued, posted, streamed. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>